I think at the beginning, when after you hit this product market fit, you can grow your company and you can grow really fast, but it's still kind of linear by doing, you've now figured out something that works, right? Right. You can grow by doing more of what you know works and doing it better, but you're mm-hmm. going to hit a ceiling at some point. And that's when you yep. need to start talking about scaling and scaling can be a different segment, different channel, different customer, different product, et cetera. But in the beginning, just do more and do it better. We'll get you a long way. Welcome to the Founders Journey Podcast. I'm Greg Moran. I'm Peter Dean. We're founders who struggle the same way every other founder does. Our goal is to let founders tell their own stories, the successes and the setbacks, the good stuff and the not so good stuff, sharing what it means to go on this entrepreneurial journey. This is part inspiration, part knowledge and learnings from everyday founders to make your journey a bit easier. Welcome back to Founders Journey Podcast with uh, Peter Dean, my uh, my co-host here. Good to uh, good to see you, Peter. Another week, another great interview. Thanks for having me back again. <laughs> Every week, man. Every damn week. Keep, I'm still here. Happening. That's right. Another uh, another great interview um, this week. Another great guest on uh, on the podcast. We have Jasper Pollock with us, and I'll introduce Jasper. But uh, but good to see you, Jasper. Thanks for. Uh, Thanks for joining us on the Founders Journey podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. So, uh, no Jasper for probably uh, just over a year or so now. Um, met originally through Twitter, where he's got an awesome following. We'll get into all that stuff. But, uh, but Jasper, the best way I describe Jasper, tell me if I'm getting this right, Jasper, is a fractional COO who really works with direct to consumer businesses, some really cool stuff, a lot in the outdoor space and things like that to 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 really build scale and generate cash. Um, while allowing them to move forward without taking on a bunch of additional investors and things like that. So really working with high growth direct to consumer businesses. He's got a, as I mentioned, he's got a huge following on Twitter where he writes uh, extensively about project management and, um, and execution in all size companies and writes a really popular newsletter called the project leaders. I think that's uh, that's a, a weekly, right? Yep. Weekly. So he's originally from the Netherlands, and we're going to get into this part. Uh, but lives up in uh, up in Norway now. So we'll get into uh, we'll get into how he ended up there. But Jasper, great to uh, great to see you. Appreciate you joining us. Happy to be here, man. Let's do it. All right, let's get into it. So um, just you know, let's actually let's just start. yeah. You, right. You're the host, so you're supposed to break the ice. But I'm going to do it on your behalf because <laughs> ten minutes <laughs> before the show started, I asked you, "Is this video or audio?" And you were like. Tuxedo, man, dress up. That's so right. I was totally <laughs> expecting you to be in a tux and Peter too, but it's all t-shirts we here. Do, we do like to, Peter and I do like to go black tie on these things. Um, but, uh, you know, today we made an exception. So Next time. Some, Next that's time. right. I was hoping to get you to bite so you'd show up in a tux and then. Uh... <laughs> what is uh, the outdoor maybe... industry tux? Like, this is it. This is the formal shirt for the outdoor <laughs> industry, right? <laughs> That, Maybe I, a, I uh, thought I I would not wear a flannel for one day of the month and, <laughs> and I get crap for it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's maybe we go like you know full monocle and uh, and and everything with it. So it would be it would be impressive, but didn't didn't work out the way I had envisioned here. So uh, so anyway, uh, Jasper, tell I mean I sort of gave the intro. Tell us what are you doing? How you got started? Just kind of give us the sort of the backstory to. How you ended up a fractional CEO working with companies on project management related uh, and sort of broader execution COO related stuff. Oh man, this is what thirty minute podcast, two hour podcast. How far do you <laughs> want me to go back? We can go as long as you want. This is like uh, Joe Rogan. <laughs> we can go all day if you want to. No, I'll. Um, We're like Joe Rogan without the listeners, by the way. So that's yeah. the, that's one notable <laughs> difference. And without the weed, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't say that. Well, maybe you guys are. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm Dutch. in Colorado. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm from the Netherlands. Um, <laughs> long nice. story short, I have a business school background, but kind of a barbell idea where the bachelor was in organizational behavior, which is really the, the people side of organizations and, and a lot of very change management heavy, for example. And then on the other end, a minor in econometrics, like the hard, nerdy data stuff, uh, regular business uh, master after that. Did some management consulting, first in boutique firms, then in larger firms, and quickly realized that I wasn't so good and also not so interested in uh, drafting like the 10, 20, 30 year ahead, big strategy, big vision stuff. 
and also not super excited by making PowerPoint slides for 70 hours a week. Um, <laughs> so pretty quickly on, I, I moved internal with a client. That was a big international industrial firm. And they had a small internal team that was basically responsible for implementing whatever advice or ideas they got from consultants. So in a regular corporate idea, right? The, the board comes up with the next great idea. Um, the CEO hires a consultant to see if it's actually a good idea. They come up with either don't or do. And in case of do with an implementation idea, and then they had this internal team of consultants, project managers, however you want to call it to implement this. And this was anything from a country entry to outsourcing logistics to a 3PL to consolidating a bunch of warehouses to process optimization, you name it. I enjoyed that a lot. That was, that was great. Uh, did that for almost seven years. Yeah. Something like that. And by the end of it ran there, the, the corporate strategic transformation program towards 2020, which every company had 10 years ago, right? Everyone had a blah, blah, 2020 strategy, which had work streams anywhere from, from finance to, uh, international expansion, construction, purchasing the whole shebang. So that's really where the, where the execution idea comes from. And then in 2019, I have to get the dates, right? 2018. Yeah. 2018, something privately happened, which gave me the opportunity to say, you know what, screw it. Um, I resign. I need to get some fresh air. Uh, and I've, uh, <laughs> I've had a long, uh, love for the mountains, which is funny as a Dutch guy, right? That's full of concrete, full of people and below sea level, but I decided to like the mountains for whatever reason. So by 2018, I, it was late in the season and I've done this voluntary work for organization, a Dutch organization, sister organization from the Dutch, from the Swiss SLF, the, like the premier avalanche uh, forecasting and, and education company in Switzerland, um, teaching avalanche courses. And as I'm in the middle of this private kefaffle that I, there's no point in getting into, but everything up in the air, basically you have a chair and four legs. And if one's a little wobbly, it's fine. But if you kick all four underneath, you have a problem. Um, <laughs> the, the owner of the school, I get in contact with him and he goes, yeah, so one of our guides, uh, he broke his leg. So I'm kind of screwed for the season. Um, so I'm and, calling and everyone. This is an avalanche control. This is an avalanche, like an avalanche education business. So you break your leg in this business and you are in yeah, you're you toast. If you can't ski, you can't work. Yeah. Like, right. it, yeah, that's just the, the, the gist of it. So he was calling all of his like guides who did like me one or two of the peak weeks. Could you do a whole season? And I'm like, of course not. I have a job and a girl and a house and a blah, blah, blah. And I spoke about it with one of my best friends the day after. And he was like, hang on. You have a job you're not too excited about anymore. You don't have a girl. You don't have a house. <laughs> Why not go to the Alps for a season? It might do you good. Long story short, I called the guy to bet the next day and I was like, all right, I'm in. Um, <laughs> so there was a season in Switzerland. As I left, I told my parents, like, I'm just going to, you know, get some fresh air for a couple months and we'll see what happens after that. I'll, I'll need to find a new job. And, but I need, I need some time off and I need a reset. And I knew deep inside, but I didn't tell my mom yet, you know, that you got to make this land softly. That the odds <laughs> of that being in the Netherlands was not 100%, let's put it that way. Yeah. Not, um, not a lot of, not like the avalanche industry, if there is such a thing in Netherlands is nascent. Not at ex best, I think. No, non-existent. Um, <laughs> but I was hoping that there would be a way to combine what I like to do outside of work with what I'm good at and what people are also willing and able to pay for, which is not those two, not necessarily go in hand. Right. So over that winter, I didn't really put too much time in it, but I was talking to a few friends and then somewhere in March or April, I think a friend from Norway reached out that I knew almost 20 years by now, uh, who co-founded a company in Norway that makes ski equipment, basically helmets, protective gear, clothing, stuff like that. They'd just been bought by private equity group. And one of the, one of the, or a piece of the deal was like, Hey, if you guys want to play big company games now, you need to grow up. Um, so that meant hiring an operations manager, CEO out of there. So he literally said that the profile they were looking for was the sweet spot between a ski bum and a jerk in a suit. Um, <laughs> and he didn't even know I didn't have a job at the time, but he was like, <laughs> just straight ski bum at the time. Yeah, 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 exactly. 
So that escalated pretty quickly. I had a few calls with them. I got on a flight from Switzerland to Oslo and then rang my mom. And I was like, so yeah, you think I'm in Zurich, but actually I'm in Oslo and I just signed a one-year contract to work here. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and that, yeah, that snowballed. I've now been in Norway for almost five years. Uh, I ended up working for the parent company behind that. And we can go into all of that, but this was already a six minute rant. So please interrupt. No, no, no. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a great, I, that's a great lead into how you ended up in Norway, which is, uh, which is, is definitely part of the, part of the questions we want to ask. Go ahead, Peter. Sorry. I think I interrupted you. There. I just want to pull it back to the skiing again. <laughs> Sorry, Greg. We, we, go for we've it. Got- at some point during this interview, we actually have to get to the to what Jasper does. But yeah, the skiing part. Is- I'm going to weave it in. I'll weave it in. I'm going to start with that. I'll start with that. I raced in college, uh, alpine skiing in college. So in New York State. So um, it's not, we have mountains here. Not not like Colorado, but. And then I spent 10 years in, in California skiing out there. So that was a lot of fun. But um, it's interesting. Um, you talked about like not missing a powder day and then starting your company. Like, how do you integrate those two things together? Cause I mean, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and it's really hard to balance like outdoor lifestyle with, you know, being an entrepreneur. Sure it is, but it's also a choice, right? You're, you're a few yep. years ahead of, of where we left off. I left the private equity group, uh, officially this spring, actually, uh, started for myself last fall with the goal of, like you say, never missing powder day. I'm not here to build the next unicorn. Um, I'm also not really into the solopreneur or into the, the lifestyle business kind of like, I didn't get completely sucked up in the Tim Ferriss books from 15 years ago. Um, but I think there's, there's a sweet spot somewhere in the middle. And if you are a skier and you live close to the mountains and you you'll know and you'll appreciate that powder days are rare, especially here where it's, it can rain as well, you know, even in February, yeah. uh, close to the coast. So if it's good, it's good. And I'm going like, it's just, it's, it's, uh, once you've made that choice, uh, then, then everything else just has to move on days like that. Well, you know, it's, it's such a, I think it's a really important concept, right? That, you know, you, you got into, I mean, you, you started this business very much around a desire for a specific lifestyle, right? Yeah. And I think one of the things that, you know, I've always appreciated about your your story, Jasper, is the reasons you started were super clear, right? These were not, like you just said, I mean, I'm not trying to build the next unicorn. I'm not, I'm not trying to go out and create this monster company. I'm trying to create this company that that really, you know, drives a lot of value in organizations, but also supports my lifestyle, right? And I think that's that's something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs, I know I've struggled with this. I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs will really struggle with is is kind of that that why behind what they're doing, right? Because there is always, I think, that impetus to say, hey, if I'm doing this, I got to go big. And mm. going big, I think, has a lot of different definitions, right? And, the, and it's a very personal definition to people. Um, I mean, is that, you know, is, is that something that you've ever struggled with? Is that, or is that just basically, I just, you just knew like, this is what I'm trying to, this is what I'm going to go try to do. I think that I'm, I have a competitive athletics background and, you know, if you've done a few weeks in, in management consulting, you know, that those two go hand in hand. But it yeah. also means a little bit of elbows, right? People yeah. get their elbows out and it's up or out. And I could sure have gotten sucked up in that for 20 more years. Um, yeah. But at some point I realized that I was getting sucked into it. And I think I'm very happy that I realized that at well, uh, late 20s instead of late 40s. Yeah. Um, and so the thing I really, that's actually a really interesting uh, um difference coming from the Netherlands to Norway in the Netherlands and most other Western European countries. It, if you meet someone like, Hey, uh, Greg, I meet you at, you know, a friend of a friend or whatever. And I'll ask, who are you? What do you do? And one of the first things you'll probably say is what do you for a living? What kind of company you run, et cetera. Right. 
Whereas here in Norway, um, I still feel like if I would have met you at a friend of a friend's birthday, you could tell me about your kids and where you grow up and that you like to ski and what mountain bike you have and yada, yada, yada. And three hours right. later, you leave and the guy sitting next to us says, oh, by the way, he's the CEO of the local bank. Right. It, so right. the 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 role that a job plays in, I would almost say society or in people's lives is a lot less significant than what I'm used to. And I think that that really like shook me up a little bit. So there is this, there's this concept, right? That you have to find this overlap of what you're good at and what you enjoy and what people are willing and able to pay for and how you can contribute. And well, you can make it as complicated as you want, but it all drives back to what you said, which is purpose. And for me, that is partially what you said earlier, Peter, um, uh, to not miss Power Day, but th there's also the summer equivalent of a Power Day, right? It's just, it doesn't even, <laughs> I could even miss a Power Day as long as it's for the right reasons. It's just right. an, it's a constant reminder to myself to not get sucked up in that hamster wheel again and make certain choices because of it. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's hard to do. Um, it's hard <laughs> sure to balance is. that because sure as is. a, you know, as an athlete, you're very competitive and you're competitive kind of probably in everything you do. I mean, if, if you're someone, uh, from the Netherlands, that's at the level where you can teach Av Abby security safety course, you had to pretty much, you had to be pretty aggressive in you know, kind of getting to know that from that place to be able to mm. actually ski at that level. And that's not a simple thing to do. I, you know, yeah. I know, I know we're going back. If I asked you, like, how did you do that? Like, how did you go with someone who has no, there's no opportunity for you really where you live to do that, to go on Alpine, you know, how, how did you do that? I think the Netherlands is what a thousand K from the Alps, 600 miles. So if you're fortunate enough, which I was, to grow up in a middle-class family where my parents both really loved the mountains, uh, we would go on a ski holiday once a year. So my first time skiing was when I was, you know, able to stand up um, three. And it, of course, it was completely meaningless and, and down a little hill in the parking lot next to the apartment where my parents were skiing and my grandparents were babysitting, basically. But it planted a seed for sure. That's just one week of skiing a year. That won't get you anywhere, right? We all know yeah, that. Yeah, I was, was going to say um, that's not that much. The, uh, the, the interesting plot twist is I actually didn't ski much for a couple of years in between because I, I got really competitive in kayaking. And Greg knows this. You don't. Uh, but I did that uh, on, a, on a high level and I did a bunch of expeditions around the world. And what that teaches you is if you're in the middle of bleep nowhere in a country where you can't call a helicopter because there's not even cell reception or whatever, you learn to deal with your own crap and you learn a lot about team dynamics. You learn a lot about risk management, etc. So once I, I had a bunch of injuries and, and surgeries and at some point there's this doc who wakes me up in hospital and he literally goes, well, there's nothing a couple screws can fix, but it's time for a new sport, buddy. <laughs> and that was my cue to... <laughs> replace kayaking with skiing again. And 90% of what you learn in any kind of outdoor sport is it's, it's just like business, right? What works in FinTech is not the same as what works in e-commerce, but there's a lot of parallels. So how you deal with risk, how you deal with teams, how you make your assessments, how you deal with mm -hmm. situations after it's gone wrong, how you make sure it doesn't go wrong in the first place. All those things, there, there are a thousand parallels. So I picked up skiing after I kind of retired from, from, uh, competing, um, because if you train all winter and you don't break your wrist on a six day family holiday in April, that's not a very popular move. Um, <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> Picked up skiing again. And there's two different components to it is learning it. And there's the, that's just from enthusiasm and loving the mountains and having friends who are good at it. And, spending a lot of time in a car up and down the Autobahn for long weekends from the Netherlands. The actual trigger to get into teaching it is a sad story. I lost one of my best friends to an avalanche in 2016. And after that, I was terrified of skiing. And I realized that I had to get over that because 
I was terrified of it, but I also really enjoy it. So it's like, mm -hmm. it's this, this devil angel on either shoulder, right? Um, and I'd done 2010 or whatever. I'd done an entry-level Alnish course through this, through this same company. And I, I had a friend that could connect me to the owner. So I reached out to the owner after that. And I said, hey, this is the story. I think that doing an advanced course might help me get over this. Because I'm the kind of guy that, you know, knowledge is, is power for me. It helps me process. Mm -hmm. He was like, yeah, sure. Come and do an advanced course. And it's good to know the, the backstory behind it. So like, if you hit a wall, just <laughs> pull my jacket. Um, I didn't hit a wall. I really enjoyed it. And we, I, I had a lot to talk about with him and also all the, all the other guides about what I'd done in kayaking and, and other expeditions. There was a lot of connections. So one thing led to the other and i after the course was like so okay what's what's next after an advanced course they were like well not so much maybe instructor training and and kind of that's how it that's how it went um <laughs> but it's cool. it's crazy right there's this there's this group of guides that live in switzerland and austria and then there's a handful of instructors that don't live there full time um i'm now no longer one of them because i also live in the mountains but in norway yeah, it's very similar down here in Colorado, right? It's it's very much this little kind of cottage community that's uh, that's here, you know. But it's it's just such an important as the uh, as the father of a uh, of a pretty out of control skier who spends an enormous time up in the middle of absolutely nowhere on multi day backcountry trips and things like that. I mean, that work is just so it's just so important. Um, it really is. So, uh, all right. So I want to, I got to pivot. It, this is, this is awesome. We can talk about this. <laughs> this I, is I, not a ski. It is. This you, is the way it's going to go. 20 minutes, Peter. We, <laughs> this is how we, you related it to business, which is super important because all the things you said set up kind of all the things you do. Well, absolutely. True. And it's, and it's just really funny. I think one, you know, one of the common themes, like it just seems like whenever we do these podcasts, one of the common themes is there's always, it just seems like, 80, 90% of the people we talk to, there's always this sort of connection to this kind of out, this outdoor connection, right? That is, uh, that's really powerful. But um, so I know in a lot of your writing, Jasper, and, and what you're doing, I mean, you talk a lot about practical project management. I know our audience for this podcast mm -hmm. is startup founders, right? This is a, I think a really important concept, especially in a startup world when you're dealing with high growth startups and things like that. How did that, how did that concept really evolve for you? Um, you know, where, and because I know it, it is a kind of an ever evolving thing and what kind of advice would you give, you know, founders of high growth startups around this sort of concept of practical project management? I would start off by saying that I'm not a zero to one guy. I'm a one to 10 guy. I'm also not a 10 to a hundred guy. So it's really this, this growth and early stage, uh, early scaling phase but way yep. before maturity and after product market fit. I think, but I'm not an expert at this, product market fit before that is just, you know, put on your blinders and get it done. And from the moment where, yeah, I'd almost say formal, but between air quotes, uh, project management makes sense, is when you build a team of, you know, 10, 15 people or something like that, and you have different activities going on. Uh, this may differ between uh, uh, business models, industries, et cetera, but I'm, I have to be super generic here. Where the practical piece came from is just the sheer frustration that everything out there about project management that's written about project management, whether it's a book or a course or whatsoever, it's tailored for the Googles and the Microsofts of the world. Right. It's paper pushing. And from a, or to a very large extent, most of that is needed in a large hierarchical and, and slightly bureaucratic organization. But it's very unhelpful if you're 20 people in a WeWork trying to get crap done at the speed where you're just you're you're running laps around the companies that need all these policies. Right. So the theory and academia is a great source of inspiration, but it won't help you get stuff done. It's too slow for that. Yeah. So what, what are the biggest, I mean, if you think about it, like when you look at, when you think about startups, right, that are in that growth phase, like you said, sort of post, because that pro, that product market fit stage is just a really, that's a hard one, right? I mean, you're, you're just, you're doing a lot of stuff to just get something to 
click. But then there's this moment, right, where it's like, okay, we figured out who can buy this product. We figured out where this message resonates. Hmm. They seem to want to continue to buy the product or buy more. At that stage, when you're starting to go from that, you know, kind of maybe five co-founder thing up to, you know, 20 employees. I mean, what, what are the breakpoints you typically see where, you know, where founders are, where they start to, they really start to struggle with hmm. kind of broadly execution, right? Yeah. The, the, there's a really obvious one that comes to mind. I think at the beginning, when after you hit this product market fit, you can grow your company and you can grow really fast, but it's still kind of linear by doing, you've now figured out something that works, right? Right. You can grow by doing more of what you know works and doing it better, but you're mm -hmm. going to hit a ceiling at some point. And that's when you yep. need to start talking about scaling and scaling can be a different segment, different channel, different customer, different product, et cetera. But in the beginning, just do more and do it better. We'll get you a long way. And when you, when you flip that switch into just do more and better, there's usually a first tipping point around 10, 12 people. Uh, Amazon popularized this a decade ago or something. They called it the two pizza teams. So they said right. that all their teams should be small enough so that you keep them with, it can feed them with two king-size pizzas. <laughs> and what I see a lot in companies that are like 10, 12, maybe 15 people, they're still too reliant on the founder. So you have, they figured out by then that there is a need for documentation. So they go to Notion or they go to Google Docs or whatever. They start writing stuff down. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. They then figure out that there's a need for communication because especially in the remote world, but, but even if you're local, you can't all sit around the same table anymore. You're past that point. But what they don't realize is that there's something in the middle, coordination. Mm -hmm. So they become the bottleneck. Because they are the one that's connecting the dots between what people talk to and what's been written down. So this is the plan. This is the reality. And they become the coordinator. And yep. with that, they make themselves the bottleneck. And I think that that is the first kind of, that's where you need to start thinking about operations or project management or whatever label you want to put upon it. You need to separate documentation, communication, and coordination and put yep. some form of, of process in place for that. That's, that. that is just an awesome way, I think, of talking about it because you see it you know, like kind of come out of the startup and venture world. And I, I see it in almost every portfolio company, right? Everybody runs into that same wall. And the way you just articulated that, I think is just a brilliant way to say it is, you know, it starts with the documentation, it, but where it hits the where it hits that wall is that bottleneck stage, right? It's the founder becomes the problem. And, you know, it's not, it's never intentional. It's never something that any, that they're even realizing that they're doing, but getting out of that, getting out of their own way is that, and it comes at different points, right? I mean, I've seen it at 2 million, I've seen it at 5 million, 10 million, 20 million. Sure. Um, some manage to make it longer than others. But that's that's that critical moment where a founder becomes the CEO. Yeah. Or does that's also, sorry, go ahead. No, I just said or or they don't, right? And that's yeah. that's that juncture. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and that's where you basically have your first um scaling issue as a company. That's where you right. realize that you're no longer a cowboy club where on Friday you order pizza and beer and figure out what you do next week. That suffices up to 10, 12, 20 best case. Yeah. But now you realize that you need to start organizing stuff. You need to start thinking about org structure. And when you say that to a founder with 15 friends, they roll their eyes and they go, no, 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 that's for Google. But right. this is where it starts. And what you see there is there's often three different directions that we take these in, in, in conversations with founders. You can, the, the first the logical option is to find a generalist, like a little Greg or a little Peter. What they're basically looking for is a unicorn with 17 legs. They rarely <laughs> exist because they think that if they find someone with the same profile and the same skill set as they do, as they are, they can do a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. But that's more of a role that, that that's almost a, a CEO, that's almost an operator or a chief of staff. If you 
if you frame it as a chief of staff, I think it makes sense, but then at a slightly larger scale. The second option people have is specialize and hire vertically. So in case of a podcasting business, get an editor, get a video editor, get a thumbnail guy, get a this, get a that. And the third one is to scale horizontally. So get someone for every five podcasts you run or get an, someone to run for every five new accounts that you onboard or for every new product feature that you make or, or whatever you need to do to, to make it fit your business model. But that's one of the very first structural choices that you have to make as founder. One is, how am I going to scale this business? And two is, what role am I going to play in it? And those are two questions that are completely derived from the question of what are we actually building here? Yeah. Why are we doing this? Where are we going? Yeah. And how are we going to get there? And that's usually where all these conversations come back to. People come to me all the time with tactical questions on project management and operations. And, and they're like the, in the nitty gritty detail. And if you don't know where you're headed and roughly how you're getting there, let's start with that because it, the clearer you have that and the clearer everyone is rowing in the same direction, the fewer questions you actually need to answer because it's obvious. Yeah. If everyone knows we're going right, no one will ask you about this shiny object on the left. You tweeted today about the shiny object syndrome. And I know that especially if a founder maybe makes it through that and now they're really a CEO, they have a little more time than they did because someone's running this part, someone's running this part. If they really gave faith into them, and I'll let them kind of do it, then do they start chasing shiny objects or how do you, how do you stay on course? I think that comes down. That's one level below the question I asked earlier. Like, what are you really yeah. building? Mm -hmm. Below that, if you know where you're headed and, and whether you frame that in a value and in, in a mission statement or, or North star, I don't really care about the framework. I'm very framework mm -hmm. agnostic, same project management. If you want to go agile, knock yourself out. If you're going to waterfall, fine by me. There's a bunch of first principles underneath it. And they are met as long as you answer a couple questions that, that allow you to implement. Underneath those first tier questions is something that most would call strategy. Strategy is basically just a set of choices. And strategy acts as a filter. So the clearer your strategy is, the clearer the filter is, and the clearer you are on strategy, and the better you're able to use it as a filter, the less likely you are to chase shiny objects. And this very much depends on the founder or co-founder profile as well. There is People ask often, like, how does the perfect leadership team look? I don't know. I don't care. Because it largely depends on the personality of the founder or co-founders. If you are a a person with a new idea every day and you are very commercial, very extrovert, very outgoing, then you might need a COO earlier than the very technical founder that struggles to sell. So it's, there's no right or wrong answer here. It's, it's yeah. this, this hatred, it depends. But I think that if you set up a leadership team or a management team that covers each other's weaknesses, covers each other's blind spots, and you're clear on the direction so you can use your strategy as a filter for what to say yes to, but way more importantly, what to say no to, that's how you can stop yourself from change, chasing shiny objects. But it's, it's hard, man. Like I, I, I say this probably on Twitter more than I should. It, shiny objects kill more businesses than a lack of ideas does. Everyone has ideas. Absolutely. That was your tweet and it's so true. Yeah. So true. I've been down those roads. I know Greg has been down those roads. I was down those roads with Greg a couple of times. I don't, you know? I don't know. I don't get distracted. Peter gets, to, <laughs> Peter distracts me. So any distraction I've I been have there too. Usually... Don't worry. Is <laughs> this great idea. And you're like, what, what does that have to do with what you're doing now? <laughs> I want to be a fly fishing You need guy, some help man. from people. You definitely <laughs> need some help from people. Um, it is. That, it's, that's it's, really interesting. It's a it's a brutally difficult thing, right? Because I think in a lot of founders, and I've seen this so many times, right? Founders will have this, there's this kind of mindset that says, I got this business to where it is. So what I actually need to do is go find five more people like me and we'll be five times better. Yeah. And breaking that mindset is a is just an is a really, really difficult 
thing to do where you actually like that, that behavioral model of a founder is so unique, right? And especially when you're dealing with like growth companies, venture back companies, things like that, that, that model of the founder is so unique and the personality is so unique. You go find five more people just like you, you're going to have five fires that you didn't have starting, you know, because that's, that's what founders do, right? We create fires. Sometimes they light engines, right? And the plane takes off. Sometimes they just set the engine, the plane on fire. And, but it's that same personality, that, that same set of behavioral characteristics. It's a tough, it's a tough thing for, I think, Every founder struggles with this concept, right? We're not executing the way we want to. And you're at that sort of plateau. You can't break it. And it's it's very counterintuitive to say, I, I need to go out and find a bunch of people completely unlike me. Yeah. Right? To go do things that feel very corporate. You know? Yeah, because if you find more five more people like you to join your early stage, then you've just given away 10, 20% of your company to start civil war. It's It's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a terrible idea. But yeah, no, it's it's bad. <laughs> the the earlier you understand as founder that what got you from zero to one won't get you from one to ten and won't get you from ten to a hundred, the the faster you'll go and the bigger you'll grow. Because right. you really you, it's inevitable. You will become the bottleneck at some point. Yeah. And you just have to figure out when that is and how to mitigate it. And yeah. the founders I have most respect for are the founders who at some point realize that they are the bottleneck and they can't solve that. So yeah. therefore they step back. That's right. The founder that goes at some point from CEO to saying, you know what? I really just love product. So I'm now going to hire a CEO. I'm going to yep. report to that person while I stay on the board and I'm going to be product officer. I have an incredible amount of respect for that. That takes guts. It's a, it's a hard transition. I could tell you that. I mean, speaking from experience where, you know, Uh, Peter and I both been there, right? Where we've built businesses that at some point we've kind of had to say, I'm just, I'm not the guy to lead this anymore, you know? And it's a hard thing. I mean, it's, it requires, I think a level of self-awareness, but it requires that, you know, requires a kind of a confidence to say, I can figure out something else to do with my time, but, but this business is not, getting beyond me. And I think for different founders, like we said, it, it happens at different stages. I mean, some, and there's nothing wrong with this. Right. And, and I think when we talk about the founder's journey, right, we name this podcast, the founder's journey, we yeah. talk about the founder's journey. It's because it's just that, like, it's, it's not, it's a moment, right. When you're starting this thing and you're going to get it to a certain point and having that understanding of what is that point that you are most comfortable. You, you said this just a couple of minutes ago, you know, I'm not the zero to one guy and I'm not the 10 to 50 guy. I think you said, or mm-hmm. I, I think I just got those wrong. The number's wrong, but you know, You're good. But, <laughs> but it's understanding where it is, like where, where is my place in this? Where can I do my skills allow me to execute better than anybody else? Because once you reach the top end of that, it's trouble. And it also works the other way, right? I mean, it also works where you hire kind of, see startups do this all the time. You hire large, large company people that come into a startup and it's like, you know, where's my, you know, where's the, this, where's the, that it's like, no, dude, we don't have any of that stuff. Like none of it. Right. <laughs> like I'll, well, I'll never forget it. this. I was involved in a, in a preparation of a board meeting with a scale up and they just brought on a CEO from, like you say, a, a public large company. And this guy was, you know, the, the going to take the company to the promised land. And he's prepping his first board meeting and he looks at me and three others around the table and he says, yeah, okay, then we agree on what we're going to tell them. So who's going to make the slides? And we all go, that'll be you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and have he was you, like, wait, what? <laughs> have you ever actually used PowerPoint? Yeah. Do you know? <laughs> and push and the buttons. Th- this yeah. same guy, we had to explain to this same guy how Outlook worked because he hadn't managed his own calendar in 15 years. It's like... Right. You yeah. don't have an army of 30 people here to do this for you. This is like, yeah. Yeah. you know, roll up your sleeves. You're in the scale-up world. This wasn't a startup anymore, but this was scale-up world. Yeah. It's very different from 
global corporations. And totally, and that, trying that's really hard not to drop names. Absolutely, <laughs> and that, that's what I—that's what I love about um, you know that concept of practical project management. Right? It's not about it's look. Who cares? I don't care if you use a sauna or a Monday or whatever. It's it's about the talent that sits around the table and their ability, right? And I think that's that's so much of what you of what you write about. Yeah, yeah, that's it's really important for me because, like I said earlier, whatever method you choose people ask it all the time what's the best method the best method is the one that fits the context and the context is the project within the organization mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter if i prefer framework a b or c it needs to fit your context but what doesn't change with whichever uh, uh, framework or methodology you choose is a bunch of first principles we're, we're always dealing with why are we doing this what are we building who do we who do we have involved both on team and as stakeholders what are the boundaries? Where are we doing it? By how are we going to execute the button? Like there's there's this at the, the the six W's, and then there's a bunch of constraints and some stakeholders and some communication. Let's not make it more complicated than that. For ninety five percent of project management, that's all you need. So if you understand those fundamentals and you then turn that into a plan, and then a plan, I think people take this way too serious. People build these these Gantt charts and these I'm known for bashing Gantt charts a little bit, but it's it's for this exact reason. I have nothing against the concept of a Gantt chart if it happens to be the right tool for the job. But what I have everything against is the pedestal that those things are placed upon. The moment you press save, it's outdated. And we all know it. We just we're just not, you know, we don't want to say it. So right. this this whole concept of planning, I think that's where the power is. It's in the the homework you do, it's in the analysis, the conversations, the trade-offs. And a plan just, it's just a way of storing those conversations. And once you have this rough direction, and, and that is also something that I think a lot of scale-ups get wrong. They're like, okay, now we have to, you know, play business, which means we need to know what we're going to do in the second week of November of 2027. No, plan a quarter ahead. Or if you're earlier, plan a month ahead for all I care. Know, you're, know where you're headed, whether that's five or 10 or 20 years ahead. And know your next few steps and then just execute because you'll learn so much more from executing the next step than you'll ever learn from a month of analysis. So get this rough direction right. Do your risk management, of course. Uh, uh, make sure that you involve the right stakeholders. Get your basics right. But beyond those basics, just get going. And you'll get good from getting uh, get going, then getting good. It's yeah. not this, this analysis paralysis. Uh, it's, it's terrible. Um, past that first plan, it's and and we've had a lot of conversation about this in the past, Greg. It's mm -hmm. all about team. Yep. Totally. I would. I'll take a good team with a mediocre plan any day over a mediocre team with the best plan in the world. It's just not going to happen. No doubt about it. So no doubt. that's the 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 two things I hammer on all the time is keep it simple, keep it practical, bring it down to first principles, and once you have those basics, those fundamentals in place. Project management is just leadership, man. Yep. With the added complexity that, especially the larger the organization gets, the more revolving and rotating people are. I hate calling them resources. Resources is money. It's people. And, yep. and you need the right people for the job. And that also means that quite often people stay on a project for a week, a month, three months, but then they leave again. So that means that you can't rely on culture. Right. Because people come and go. So that means you have to make all these small things that in a larger organization you can lean upon. You can lean upon it because the culture will take care of it. People know what the way is we do things here. So that means that you need to make a lot of stuff that is normally implied. You now need to make that explicit. So it's all just leadership, taking people along in your change story, getting the right people on board, getting rid of the people who are who did a great job but are no longer necessary, keeping that team lean, figuring out the next step and the next step and the next step. And just keep it going. Keep it going from there. Constantly managing expectations, making the explicit, uh, making the implicit explicit, not the other way around. And <laughs> I think that is where, that's where project management, uh, uh, one of the things I, that's in, I think it's in the tagline or something of the newsletter is you, you manage work, but you lead people. 
And I think that we've gone a little too far in most project management where we try to manage people as well. People are more than just a number in a spreadsheet. There's a person behind it. And the moment the project manager realizes that, they're ahead of 90% of, of the pack. Yep. So that is something I try to bring up in almost every conversation. There's so much power in that. Get a basic yep. plan in place and from there on lead the team. You'll you'll get there. So I have a question. You work, I work in the same space you do actually. Um, in that same growth mode mm -hmm. and scaling. How do you, when you go, how do you identify the situation of a company and, and kind of do the assessment of where they're at? Because there, you've talked about like over, like probably managing people and really overly engineered planning. And then also maybe, maybe the founder that's trying to do everything and and it's not really organized very well, or they're not making anything explicit. How, how do you find out where they're at in that, in that process? Um, I think what you sketch are two completely different situations. One is a, a yeah. strict execution problem. And there at the situation we, we discussed earlier where it's basically over-engineered. That's what you yeah. brought up earlier, Greg. Uh, right. That's what happens if you, you know, get your, CTO with three IPOs under his belt into a 15-man startup. Right. Um, that's usually not too hard to identify. Join a couple calls and you'll get a feel for <laughs> the dynamic. Um, ask for the documentation and someone will send over a nine gigabyte Google Drive. It's like, you're four people, right? What's in there? I'm not even going to read it. What's in there? <laughs> yeah. And the other one is... If I come in to help a founder get on top of their operations, one of the first questions I always ask is, what are you building here? Where are you headed? And the ones that can give me a very clear answer, it's, it's not many of them, but they're there. If they can give me a clear answer, then they're usually able themselves to tell me, all right, what's on fire? What's the bottleneck? Mm -hmm. And the ones who are unable to tell me what their direction is, that is just, we, we just identified the bottleneck. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I always start with that bigger picture because like I said earlier, the clearer that is and the more people are all rowing in the same direction, you just made half of your inbound questions redundant. It's no longer necessary. Yeah. So we get that in place. And from there, there's usually two or three lead dominoes that we can identify. If we knock those over, 40 other things on your desk have just either answered themselves or are no longer mm -hmm. relevant. Yep. So it's this constant, uh, that's the, the consultant, the problem solver in me. Like, what is what is the next lead domino? What is the dial with the least effort and the largest leverage that we can turn? You talk about, you, you talk about first principles, right? I mean, it's, it's really as simple as what are we creating? Who are we creating it for? How are we creating it, right? I mean, it's really, it's really... I mean, I know there's more to it than that, but I mean, if you can start with those questions and have a real clarity around those, around the answers to those questions, it's amazing, right? I mean, you're, you're going to be leaps, you're going to be leaps and bounds ahead of most other startups that are just, they're just doing stuff, right? Mm. Where that direction, it just turns into sort of random noise all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that in the in the scaling phase, that's also a really interesting phenomena. So a founder comes to me with, and they have their their they run projects. Okay, great, and they run their their operations. So they're building something, and on the side they have about fifty projects going on. And then we dig into their strategy a little bit over a couple of sessions. All right, this this is where you're headed, and these are the goals, and these are the strategic pillars you're building that upon. Now let's relate all the stuff you're doing to these couple of strategic pillars. Turns out thirty five of forty can be tied back to strategy, aka right. busy work. Yep. So you come home at the end of the day, you work your butt off for nine hours, but the alignment is missing. So it's this, I always draw this triangle, right? From from 30 year or 10 year or whatever you choose goal, all the way down from 10 year to one year to quarter to down to the individual or in larger organizations on team level. What are they working on next week? And how does that contribute to your monthly numbers, your quarterly OKRs, your annual goals? Dun, dun, dun. How does that, and the clearer that information flow is top to bottom, but also bottom back to top, 
the more people are rowing in the same direction and the more this flywheel picks up speed. It's That's just, right. yeah, once you've seen it in action a couple of times, it's one of those teams where you come in and you're like, hey, crap, there's half of it here is, it's just clicking. It's working. Right. And it's, yep. people have to experience that before they realize that it's actually possible. Like work doesn't have to suck. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a great way to, uh, that's a great way to wrap this up. I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things, if you've ever been on a great team, we all, I think we all, we all know what it feels like to be on a shitty team. Mm. But if you've ever been on a great team, you understand the palpable difference between those two. And that's, that's, that's experience. It's talent. Um, and it's also just sometimes just stumbling into it. Right. And, uh, yep. and being on a team where you can really experience that kind of alignment for the first time. Yep. It's, it's an incredibly powerful thing. This is, um, this is awesome, Jasper. I know you've got a uh, you've got a huge Twitter following. You got the newsletter. How do people uh, how do people engage with you? How do they reach you if they are looking for some help around um, operations and execution in their business? How do people get in touch with you? Twitter's the place to be, man. I'm very active there. Uh, that's how we connect in the first place, Greg, and how yep. I meet a lot of people on a daily basis. So uh, at uh, Polak. Jasper, I think, because the other way around yeah. was already taken by someone I've never met. Um, <laughs> and I we don't have, have a lot of the burn on the X handle or something like that. Uh, but right. if you just, just look up my name, Jasper Polak. Uh, there's not a lot of them. Um, I'm not called Ben Smith, so that helps. <laughs> we'll, uh, put it, we'll put it in the show notes too. So, uh, sure. so there'll be a link there as well. Twitter's the place uh, so to Twitter's... be, both for DMs and, and for more content. Got it. Yeah, so... Um, uh, Jasper is definitely a must follow on topics around the stuff. If you know, in the startup world, the execution world, the founder world, um, definitely, uh, a must follow subscribe to, uh, subscribe to the newsletter. I think you could do it right, right there. Right. Right through like through, they'll find the path to get on your. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Like I said, Twitter yeah. leads to anything else you, you'll ever want to get involved in. <laughs> yep. Perfect. Well, this is awesome, man. It's, uh, you know, I've had the pleasure of knowing you for a year now. This is, uh, this is great. You know, I'm a, not only, uh, you know, do I consider you a friend, but I'm a huge fan as well. So I think, uh, I think this is, uh, this is really good stuff and really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me, man. Next time here in purpose or in person, we go skiing. Uh, Absolutely. I told you, I, October, I'm working on it. So um, it's a little early, but we can try well, <laughs> ski, hike, ride. So there'll be some. The only thing I'm not doing is kayaking, but uh, <laughs> but it sounds like you can't do it anyway. So we'll find we'll find some other ridiculous thing to nearly get ourselves killed. I'm sure. We'll give it a try. All right. Thank it's you awesome. very much for your time, Jens. Bye bye. Thanks, Jasper. <laughs>